Hey there, I'm Eric J. Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. You're listening to the Managing Partners Podcast, where we interview top lawyers about how they're growing their firms. Hey, everybody, it's Eric J. Olson with another live edition of the Managing Partners Podcast. And today I have Carrie Ichter with me. How you doing, Carrie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Anything personal you want to share? Where you live? Things like that. Personal. Well, I'm a lawyer and I've been uh, practicing law for, God, it's scary now, 37 years. Graduated from the University of Georgia Law School back in 1984, also known as Harvard of the South. And, you know, I've been doing civil litigation, principally complex commercial litigation litigation for most of that time. More recently, my practice has begun to veer a bit into some domestic relations work because I've come to discover that once you hit a certain financial threshold in marital estates, the issues in divorces become commercial litigation. It's all about valuing assets, tracking assets, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing some of that. I've also been doing a lot of work on a special master. I got my first special master appointment about 15 years ago, and I became very interested in it. I wrote the Georgia law on the appointment of special masters and the use of special masters. I became the president of ACAM, the Academy of Court Appointed Masters, which is the only national organization of special masters in the country. And more recently, I have uh, worked with the ABA Committee on Special Masters, and I, together with a fellow by the name of Merrill Hirsch, sort of led the charge with respect to coming up with guidelines for appointment and use of special masters in federal and state courts. So uh, as far as hobbies are concerned, all of that leaves a little time for hobbies. I have three daughters and a dog and uh, and a lot of books that I have stacked up that I plan to read when I have the time. Yep, I have a stack like that as well. Yep. So, alright, a, a lot to unpack there. Let's start with uh, did you call it d- domestic law? Yeah, domestic litigation, family litigation. Yeah, I, I was wondering it, how overlapping or is it exactly the same as family law? Where, where's the separation there? It, it is. It's the same thing. I deal principally in the family law arena with issues of divorce, uh, uh, equitable division of marital estates and the payment of alimony. Okay. And are you establishing wills and trusts as well before, you know, heavens or I, I, now I have, have done some trust litigation, but I don't write, write trusts and I don't write wills. I leave that to people who know what they're doing. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then the other thing that you mentioned that, that I wasn't familiar with is special masters. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. Special. No, it's only in English. Special masters are court adjuncts. They're called different things in different states. The federal rules of civil procedure provide for the appointment of special masters. Various state court rules uh, also have similar uh, rules that uh, provide for the appointment and use of special masters. Some places they're called adjuncts. Some places they're called referees, but they are individuals who are appointed by the court to assist the court in the handling of litigated cases. And 
special master can come into a case and do a variety of different things. The, the list is almost endless, but generally speaking, special masters come in and assist the court in managing pre-trial issues, handle the management of discovery, deal with discovery issues, perhaps deal with motions for summary judgment, deal with Daubert motions, and, and also after the case is over, if you have, uh, say for example, class action cases and you have a large pool of money that has to be distributed among claimants, you can be a settlement administrator uh, in the capacity of the special master. If a court issues uh, some sort injunction or decree with respect to, let's say, the management of prison, jails, colleges, hospitals, anything like that, where litigation has been instituted, say, involving civil rights issues, and it requires monitoring and enforcement. Oftentimes, the courts will appoint special masters to conduct that monitoring and enforcement. Okay. So this, this is a uh, an extension of, of the court. This is a role that's part of the court? Yes, right? sir. Quasi-judicial officer. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of that one. So that, that is an interesting concept, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's needed in a lot of cases. Yeah. Also, where there are complex issues, technical issues that the court might not be familiar with, you know, we got e-discovery these days, and that can get pretty hairy yeah. and require a level of competence in the area of computer science that not a lot of judges really have. Now, the, you know, the lawyers in the case can provide them with the needed information to resolve issues, but sometimes it gets pretty hairy. And, and so having somebody who is an expert, uh, that also arises in patent cases, uh, where you want somebody who's familiar with the science to assist the court in handling uh, the issues that arise in those cases. Great. All right. And you mentioned you've been practicing for 37 years. Yes. How long, uh, how long ago did you start your firm? <laughs> well, it depends on which one. So I started out my career with a firm called Powell Goldstein, Frazier & Murphy, uh, which was one of the three largest firms in Atlanta at that point in time. And I worked there until 1992 and started a firm at that point in time called Meadowsichter & Trigg, which became Meadowsichter & Bowers. And uh, we went from three lawyers to about 30 lawyers uh, between 1992 and 2003. And then we merged with a larger firm. Then I decided I don't like big firms so much. So I started my own firm again. I wound up uh, starting this firm in 2009. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a similar story. I have a, a couple of previous companies that I've formed in my history. And about four years ago, I uh, merged with another co-founder and became Array Digital. So yeah, I, I, I know that what that journey is like. Mm -hmm. You start a company, kind of build it up, see that you want something to change, maybe start another company, right. kind of bounce around a little bit. It's, it's right. a common journey, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the nice thing about working for yourself is that if things go well, that's really good for you. And if things go poorly, you know who to blame. <laughs> you are right about that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Gotcha. You, you mentioned uh, several different practice areas. What are your typical kinds of clients? Are they in a particular like industry or niche or all sorts of different industries? I would say that it's principally small and medium-sized businesses. We do fairly sophisticated commercial work. And so, you know, anything that involves a contract, we do employment litigation and we do franchise litigation. I, I have coined the term sales channel litigation because mm -hmm. 
internal sales organizations have all kinds of issues with respect to employees, and in particular, non-competes, non-solicitations, non-recruitment, non-disclosure, misappropriation of trade secrets, that kind of stuff. That kind of issue comes up on a regular basis. So that's your internal sales organization. Then you have distributors and manufacturers, and they typically have many of the same kind of issues. Uh, oftentimes, you'll have issues with respect to things like encroachment, use of intellectual property, stealing each other's employees, that sort of thing. And then in the franchise area, you have the same sort of issues, but more of the violation of the FTC rule with respect to the purchase and sale of franchises uh, and whether or not earnings claims have been made, whether or not they're valid and that sort of thing. And then you have to litigate whether uh, a franchisee has uh, a right to make a claim based upon the violation of the FTC Act, because there's no, according to the statute, there's no private right of action. But uh, in Georgia, you can, because we have in this firm imported the FTC Act into Georgia tort law through a tort statute that says that if somebody owes you a legal duty and they breach that legal duty and injure you as a consequence, you got a claim in Georgia. So there is a private right of action in Georgia. Nice. Well done. That's interesting. So 37 years practicing, you've seen a tremendous amount of change in your career. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, I won't even ask if you have. I know you have. What Actually, before I ask this next question about the future, yeah, what, what are some of the, the big changes that you've seen in the legal industry? And, and at, in in particular, like how it's affected you and, and maybe like your company in particular? Well, obviously, the biggest change is technology. When I went to work for Powell Goldstein in 1984, we were still using carbon paper. We had uh, the secretaries outside of the office. We were dictating and they were listening to those tapes. They were typing. We did have a word processing system. And what they would do was the secretaries would type big documents using various codes that would be fed into a scanner and would go into our word processing system. And then we would get these large printouts that we could make notes on and edit and take it to the word processors and they would fix the document. And then you had the printers that had the little ball that went back and forth and back and forth. And the so matrix. Was, yeah, you're sitting there waiting, you know, the, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals is five blocks down the street. It's 415 and you are printing out your 30 page brief and you got to run down to the 11th Circuit. <laughs> to get the thing filed and you're sitting there watching the thing print and you see a typo yeah. as it's printing that you have to figure out, okay, am I going to fix this or not? Because if I have to print the last 15 pages again, we ain't going to make it. Yeah. So, I mean, those kind th that, that was what uh, what we did back in the primitive days. But so, I, I bet even then you were probably like, this is amazing technology. Oh, this yeah. Helps us so much. Yeah. Oh, the ball that went back and forth, you know, that was I was how does it know how to do that backwards? <laughs> it, it uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a miracle. My, and my now, first, uh, laser, I remember the first time my first case where we got faxes in from Switzerland on the paper that rolled up when it oh, came yeah. the, the thermal machine. paper. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the changes in technology have been absolutely remarkable. The fact that I can work from home and access Westlaw and have the entire universe of legal documents in the right world. Here. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Um, although I don't write too many briefs on my phone. Inefficient. <laughs> you can do uh, the, the speech to text. You'll just have to yeah. correct every other word. That's true. Yeah. <laughs>
So that's that's the biggest change. Plenty of change. Yeah, I remember uh, my very first job was in '95 timeframe, and the project manager was telling me how when the fax machine came out a few years earlier, it completely revolutionized revolutionized the industry, just massive leap forward in technology. And uh, just yesterday, uh, my financial advisor was asking me if I had a fax. I'm like, I haven't had one of those in like 20 years, literally. Yeah, it's things right. change just so fast. It's amazing. Well, so speaking of trends, you know, uh, the, the, the real question question that I had given you beforehand was what trends do you see in the legal industry that are going to change things going forward? Well, the continuation of the evolution of technology, you know, what we see is that, you know, customs and practices that we employ today quickly become obsolete and archaic. And if we don't stay on top of how technology is evolving, that, you know, in the fullness of time, we're going to be so far behind that uh, there will be no catching up. So uh, the expectations of, of staying current and being capable of evolving with the technology, I think are the are the biggest changes that we're going to be seeing. So if you listen to the pundits and the, the futurists, they, they say that uh, intermediaries are going to be displaced by technology and artificial intelligence. So intermediaries being like realtors, travel agents, lawyers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any uh, encroachment of technology into, uh, you know, what what a lawyer used to do? And I don't mean like, you know, the typing, but but the actual practice of law. Not in, not in connection with what I do, I, and and I can't really imagine being replaced by a robot. You know, standing up in front of a jury or standing up in front of a court and explaining to the court why my client has been aggrieved and is entitled to some sort of remedy and trying to appeal to a jury's or a judge's humanity is something that I just don't think you can automate. I think that you need to have passion and empathy and, and the ability to connect. And I don't see that as being something that we're going to be able to outsource to a piece of tin. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd want to punk down money on that kind of a lawyer. No. No, not yet. Not Although yet. I have seen some lawyers who are somewhat robotic. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I have a question. Here we go. Sean Ragsdale, how has debate in college helped you in your career? Do you believe it to be a prerequisite for success in law? It is not a, a prerequisite. It has been of enormous help to me. And my partner, Dan Davis, is also a former college debater. Dan almost won the national debate tournament. My, my partner and I were number seven in the country my senior year. And in the debate world, everybody debates everybody. It doesn't matter how big your school is. But I did it for four years. And, you know, you get up on your feet and make arguments for four years. You're going to learn something. And you're going to have a great deal of practice thinking on your feet and stringing words together and also having some passion about what you're saying. Yeah. So I think it's been an enormous, enormously important to my success, but I will tell you prerequisite. No, one of the best lawyers I ever saw was a lawyer. I used to work with one of my partners, Mark Trick and Mark was a former preacher and same sort of skill set, but uh, a different approach. Approach, you know, my, my approach has always been sort of aggressive and combative, you know, and Mark's approach was always let us reason together. Passionate, right? Inspirational. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah, interesting. And Sean has a second question. Likewise, with your comment about technology and obsolete, will AI become worse? So we kind of touch. I mean, we definitely touch on that. Yeah, I, I I don't think so. I mean, you may replace paralegals to some extent. Some of the tasks that paralegals perform may very well be able to be automated through artificial intelligence. But I don't see the kind of stand-up work that we do that a trial lawyer does ever being replaced by artificial intelligence or by technology. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see maybe um, providing data research, right? Mm -hmm. Inputs into, you know, what a, what a human lawyer does, but certainly replacing a trial lawyer, that's probably hundreds of years away. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, you probably won't even hopefully have a trial, I'll, right? Still, hopefully I'll be around to be replaced. Well, yeah, you got to start replacing <laughs> some of these parts, you know? Right. So, speaking of technology. The bionic lawyer. <laughs> this guy in the gym, he, uh, he's getting hit, a hip replacement. He's in his 60s. And he said, yeah, you know, old guys, they don't die anymore. They just get upgrades. <laughs> yeah, one piece at a time. Yep. Oh, cool. Uh, speaking of uh, upgrades, what kind of growth plans do you have for your firm? Although I am a great believer in the old bromide that he who fails to plan plans to fail, I don't really have plans with respect to growth. When, when the work comes, we grow. I focus more on creating new business, engaging in business development activities. And if the work comes, I go out and I, I find folks to assist. One of the things that I have done in the recent past is reached out to some more senior lawyers. Uh, a fellow by the name of Bill Barwick, who's a former president of the Georgia State Bar, is going to be joining us in May. And Bill is well-respected, highly accomplished trial lawyer himself from, from a big firm. He's been with a number of big firms and does very sophisticated work. Also, Jim Hawkins, who I worked with at Powell Goldstein, has recently joined our firm. So I like the idea of bringing on people who don't have to be trained because we don't have time to train folks. If we're bringing them on, it's because we're drowning. So bringing on people who are already experienced and capable is important. Cool. All right. Well, I've got uh, actually two more questions for you. Okay. First is, you know, you, you mentioned business development. You do a lot of business development. Can you go into like a little bit of detail about what you do for business development? And then also uh, what, what kind of marketing strategies or marketing techniques do you find work well for you? Yeah, I'm old fashioned. So I typically go with the getting published. I like to write when I see a topic that interests me or when I write a brief on something that's a an original or unique sort of topic, uh, I'll often turn in some sort of article and submit it for publication. I like to go and speak at events, and I probably do that two or three times a year or more. And I also get involved in things I'm passionate about, like the Special Master Committee of the ABA. Right now, I'm on a subcommittee that's involved in examining the ways that special masters can assist courts in dealing with the backlog that they're experiencing from the pandemic. And, uh, and I'm currently engaged in conversations with judges here in Georgia on how special masters can assist. And we're looking at putting together rosters and identifying the kinds of cases that special masters could assist with so that we can begin to process cases that have been sitting around waiting for attention for the past however long the, the pandemic has, has had the courts shut down. 
And so that gives you a bit of a high profile if you're engaged in, in that kind of activity. And we do, I, I have a LinkedIn account and I have a Facebook account and I have an Instagram account and I'm told that I should blog and all of that sort of thing. And, like and sometimes write. I do because I like to write, yeah. but I give those writings to other people and say, do whatever you do with this in order to make it a blog. Cause I don't know. Yeah. That's pretty much it. All right. Final question. Probably the most important one. I see something behind you, behind your left shoulder, like tassels. What, what is that back there? Well, I went to the university of West Georgia and I recently <laughs> had a lunch with the president of the university and uh, one of his assistants and they brought gifts for us. And I, I haven't had a chance to examine what they are, but you know, it's the, the typical swag that you nice. get. You got the uh, Go Discover West Pen, and we have a stretchable cell phone wallet with uh, West Georgia's logo on it. We have a West Georgia button for you to put on your shirt or jacket, one of those. Yeah, you and then have that. your West Georgia uh, mask. Branded mask. Yep. Very and, timely. Uh, there you go. It's all the swag you need. Exactly. So uh, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big supporter of the university. It did a lot for me. You know, I was, um, if you asked me in college what I did, I would have told you I was a college debater. And uh, being able to go to West Georgia and participate in the debate program there for four years on scholarship was huge. And so I'm, I, I try to give back. And so on a, on a monthly basis, we send a check every month to West Georgia wow. to support the debate program. Good for you. Very impressive. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. If someone wants to get in touch with you, What's the best way to do that? I'm in the witness protection program. I can't go into that. <laughs> now, I, uh, cichter at ichterdavis.com is the best way to find me. The law firm name is Ichter Davis, and you got the spelling right there. It ain't easy. Yeah. And I, anytime I say it, I have to spell it three times in order for them to get it right. Everybody wants to spell it Ichter. It's yeah, not I-T-C-H. It's I-C-H-T-E-R. I, before we went <laughs> live, I, I asked how to pronounce it. I said it wrong. It's like Victor without the it's V. It's like Victor without the V. Yep. There you go. You said that a few times. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And for everyone who's watching this, if you are looking to improve the marketing of your law firm, please reach out to Array Digital. We are at ArrayLaw.com. All right, bud. Thanks so much. Thank you.